Hi, this is Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. On December 2nd, I had the great honor of interviewing Dr. Fiona Hill, who rose to national prominence during the first impeachment inquiry into former President Trump. She spoke as part of the inaugural episode of the Provost Roundtable. The only editing has been to cut out some awkward pauses. Otherwise, all information that was shared is here in this podcast. So let's get started in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. a wonderful guest with us. So uh, I want to welcome everyone to the first edition of the Roundtable. The Roundtable, formerly known as the Campus Conversations, is a series of discussions, forums hosted by my office, the Provost Office, that brings together our community to learn about, explore, and discuss the issues that directly affect the lives of those in our community, and to provide a space where conversations can occur and diverse viewpoints can be shared and considered. Today, I have an incredible honor, and I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Fiona Hill to discuss the dangers of populism. Dr. Hill is a Robert Bosch Senior Fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings Institute. She recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019. From 2006 to 2009, she served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Euro-Asia at the National Intelligence Council. Dr. Hill is co-author of Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. She has researched and published extensively on issues related to Russia, the Caucasus, Central Asia, regional conflicts, energy, and strategic issues. She holds a master's in Soviet studies and a doctorate in history from Harvard University, where she was the Frank Knox Fellow. She also has a mass, holds, holds a master's in Russian and modern history from St. Andrews University in Scotland and has pursued studies at Moscow's Morris Torres Institute of Foreign Languages. Dr. Hill is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Hill, we thank you so much for joining us today. Our audience speaks for itself. We are thrilled to have so many come from UIC to welcome you. I will also uh, introduce, and it's with great pleasure to introduce UIC professor, Kate Flores. Professor Flores will be moderating the conversation with Dr. Hill and the Q&A. Professor Flores is a clinical assistant professor in political science department at UIC. She received her PhD in political science and is specializing in international, specializing in international relations from the University of Pittsburgh. Her research broadly addresses the factors leading to the onset and resolution of civil wars around the world. And her current project seeks to understand the multi-stage process of civil war peace negotiations and why they fail much, of, much more often than they succeed. 
Professor Flores' teaching interests include courses in international relations, US foreign policy and the United Nations, civil wars in a global context, and a course she created on the intersection of popular culture and politics. Professor Flores also hosts the UIC radio podcast, The Politics Classroom, available on most podcast platforms and airing in our UIC radio UIC, on uicradio.org on Tuesdays from three to four. She created her podcast to be an extension of her teaching, helping to explain what's going on in the world and inspiring students and others to get involved in the political process. Politics Classroom is meant to unpack current events by providing the background and context to make the news more understandable. Finally, and before I turn it, to professor, turn it over to Professor Flores, there are a handful of units across the campus that have been particularly supportive of this event, and I would like to thank them. The Department of Political Science, Dr. Evan McKenzie, the department head. The College of Liberal Arts and Science, Dean Astrid Tantillo. The Department of History, Dr. Kevin Schultz, department chair. The Department of Sociology, Dr. Michael Emerson, is the department head. And the College of Urban Planning and Public Affairs, Interim Dean David Merriman. I would also like to once more thank Dr. Fiona and Professor Kate Flores for sharing their time and expertise with us. And I would like to mention Anna Panova, staff member in the College of Dentistry, who made this event possible. Without her, we would not have had the connection with Dr. With Dr. Hill, and we are extremely thankful for that, Anna. Thank you. And now, without further delay, I welcome Professor Flores. Thank you, Provost Reyes. And Dr. Hill, I want to add my welcome to UIC and thank you for sharing uh, your time and experience with us today. I'd also like to thank our audience for joining us at a very busy time in the semester. Many of you submitted excellent questions, some of which I will borrow to facilitate the first part of this conversation. But the second half of our hour will be devoted to your questions. We have the Q&A function enabled, and I encourage you to make use of it and ask, record the questions that you have for Dr. Hill. Anna Panova, who was just mentioned, as well as Kelsey O'Shea from the Provost's office will uh, read those questions and share them with us later in the hour. So Dr. Hill, if you're ready. I am, Kate. yeah, thank you so much. It's really great to be here, by the way. I'm really delighted. So when the title of this roundtable, The Dangers of Populism, was announced, I received an immediate email asking me what exactly we meant by populism. So that's probably the best place to start today. The academic literature continues to debate about what exactly populism is, whether it's an ideology, a mobilization strategy, whether it's just on the right or it can be on the left. So I was wondering if you could just explain to us a little bit about what, what you are talking about when you talk about populism. Yeah, I'd be delighted to do that. And, um, you know, one of, uh, you know, the things that I would also, you know, like to mention is that, you know, this was really the theme of the new book that I've just published that was actually as I was thinking about it years ago, actually, in terms of trying to explain for myself what populism is, because I think you know, you're absolutely right, there's a lot of debate about what is it. But, you know, I think we saw it in uh, 2016 in the period, um, you know, since then here in the United States. I think there've been populist moments in the US past that certainly have um, all the way around the world and in history and in contemporary international politics and some of the places, in fact, that you study 
you know, Professor Flores with, um, you know, the work on civil war and how civil war often emerges in, in a kind of a populist environment. It can be on the right and it can be on the left, you know, as well. But in, in, you know, my new book, There's Nothing For You Here, which is sort of telling, you know, kind of things through a personal lens, you know, I kind of lay out how three countries that I know really well, the United Kingdom, where I was born and grew up, um, the Russia, which used to be the Soviet Union 30 years ago, back till uh, December, um, they will have been the, uh, you know, the anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And here in the United States, in the time since I arrived here in 1989, we've seen kind of populist tendencies and a kind of a form of a movement and a sort of a style of governance emerge. I would say that populism is less of an ideology. And I think this is why it makes it so difficult to kind of get your hands around it, because usually there's an ism attached, people are expecting to find something coherent, you know, Marxism, socialism, even then, you know, communism. I would kind of argue that there's a lot of interpretation, you know, that's possible here, conservatism, liberalism, you know, we go on and on and on. And certainly we expect with populism there to be some kind of it thing that you can grab hold of, but it really is more of a style of uh, politics, again, can be left and right. It's kind of an approach, but there are some really important uh, factors, uh, descriptive factors. One is which it short circuits um, democracy in the sense that it kind of cuts out the intermediaries between the leader or the movement and the people. So populism in essence is supposed to be a connection with the people. Um, you know, it kind of emerges out of Italy and, you know, kind of other kind of thinking in different uh, historical periods. And in the manifestations that I'm kind of thinking about in the UK and in Russia and in the United States, as I lay out in uh, the book, you really have a kind of a strong leader or a kind of a, a movement that is kind of basing all of its legitimacy and its ideas on uh, public opinion and on public opinion support, direct support rather than you know, so something kind of maybe uh, coherent in, in terms of an ideological uh, perspective. And then there is no intermediary factors. So if we take Russia, for example, my argument about Vladimir Putin is that he is a populist president. He's the first really successful popular president of the 21st century. <laughs> Putin's been with us for the entire 21st century. He became president in 2000. He's still president in Russia. Yep. Vladimir Putin is not part of a political party. Not at all. He's not even really part of any kind of formal movement. It's just him. He's the president of Russia. Uh, he's got all these constitutional attributes of the president, a very strong presidency. But and he's directly elected by the Russian people. And he's always invoking the Russian people um, in Russian, the Narod, you know, the idea of the people, uh, um, you know, who are supporting him. His presidency is highly dependent on uh, public opinion uh, polling and scrutiny of the polls to kind of, and so he will move. This is the popular element of this as well. You're moving, you know, to get, keep gaining popularity and popular legitimacy. You're looking at what the popularity polls might tell you or the po public opinion, you know, might tell you about you know, particular issues and particular policies. And you kind of move everything in that direction to satisfy popular demand. And it's not, it's short circuits, short circuits representational aspects of democracy or representation because there's no intermediary between just this popular opinion as expressed in opinion polls and also expressed through the ballot box in a kind of direct election. And, you know, the president or the, you know, the individual at the top themselves of the movement. So there's no real political party that's the kind of this, the representational force in Russia, not even United Russia, which is the, um, the main uh, party. There's no other movements, there's no other intermediaries, no other organizations or institutions. There's just President Putin 
and then all the public opinion. And he has to uh, basically subject himself to election periodically for the terms. And it's kind of a, a re-legitimation or a kind of a taking of the popular uh, political temperature. There's never really any opposition. Um, and like I said, all of his policies, apart from those that are kind of mostly focused on national security and things, are really shaped by public opinion and perceptions and, and assessments of his own popularity. In the UK, I talk about this populist movement that emerged to pull Britain out of the European Union, the Brexit movement of 2016, which I'm sure people have followed. And in that case, this was more of a sort of, again, a movement. It wasn't really an ideology. It had one thing in mind. Let's get Britain, let's get the UK out of the European Union, and then all these other things will you know, kind of come from it. And it was led by um, an individual who was never in formal politics in uh, the United Kingdom in terms of having an elected position. Nigel Farage, who was the head of a movement, the UK Independence Party, which is less of a party, again, of a loose movement, only a handful of people there. And the only political office he ever achieved was actually, ironically, being elected to the European Parliament, but with the express view of pulling Europe out of it. And, you know, UKIP, his movement uh, really kind of fizzled as any kind of an entity, but he had a huge impact on shaping popular, popular public opinion and, in fact, forcing the other mainstream parties, the Conservative Party in particular, to embrace a lot of the positions, the popular positions that were kind of driven a lot by public opinion that he was kind of stirring up in favour of moving towards Brexit or removing uh, the UK from the EU. And, you know, kind of with Putin, it's hard to say is this left or right, because, you know, with Russia these days, it's not so ideological. In the British uh, context, it, it transcended all kinds of left-right divisions because it was about an issue. It was an issue that kind of become cemented in public opinion about, you know, kind of people's visions of what they thought the UK was going to be if it was outside of uh, the European Union or what it would be like if it remained. And you'd find people of both left-right political persuasions, Labour Party, Conservative Party, and others voting in a referendum, a direct popular uh, participation in this issue uh, in favour of leaving or remaining. And, you know, so referendum plebiscites, you know, these direct democratic um, and, uh, episodes or kind of you know, participation and public opinion are all part of populism, the approach, a kind of a style, and here in the United States, our presidential elections are a bit like a referendum. And in many respects, we're not really voting for a party in an election. We're often voting for a person, a personality, and it's based on popular opinion and the popular appeal of an individual. And when I've talked to an awful lot of people, including members of my own family, about why they voted for Trump, they say, well, he was entertaining. He was charismatic. I liked him better than the other guy or I liked him better than Clinton. You know, in the other case, it's about popularity. It's a popularity contest, not just about political ideology. So why is that inconsistent with democracy? If, if people are voted into leadership and the leaders are basing their policies on what the people say they want through these direct measures, why is an intermediary necessary and why is this seen as a threat to democracy when what you've described seems to be a connection between the leader and the will of the people? Well, it's a, it's a threat to representational democracy because as I said, there's no representatives in the form of political parties or directly elected officials, like Congress people, members of parliament, um, members of the Russian Duma, for example, who would be representing your views in a more complex system. It's a very primitive direct system. It's the direct election of a leader. And that, that it becomes the only representative. So for those people who did not elect that leader, 
whose opinions are not being um, expressed through the person of that leader, then they have no voice in the system. They have no representation. So, you know, it depends. You can have a plebiscitary direct democracy. Um, you know, that's in fact kind of what Russia is. There are no intermediaries for the people. There's no other voice other than getting your voice heard by somebody like Vladimir Putin. And we see Putin, for example, engaging in these amazing, incredible, lengthy town halls on, that are televised, you know, direct communication with him. It's like people have to petition him and bring things to him, everything from potholes getting fixed in their town. No joke. This happens at these events, you know, to issues that might be, you know, kind of more import. But it's kind of basically like a throwback to earlier times, a kind of a, you know, sort of a, a, an earlier kind of political manifestation. Uh, as I said, plebiscitary democracy, maybe, you know, people would vote in referendums all the time. You know, do you like X or Y? Do you want to leave, you know, or um, remain in the European Union? You know, would you prefer we go to war with China or not go to war with China? We all have a vote on this, you know, kind of uh, the Swiss, you know, Canton system was based on uh, one of those, you know, kind of methods earlier on of, you know, direct democracy, people voting on every major issue. We often have that on our ballots. You know, we might have a local ordinance or something that we're voting on along with our elections, but we would essentially just do that on every particular issue. Uh, um, if, you know, unless the leader who gets the majority of the votes you know, kind of uh, decided they're going to resolve all this themselves. But it just leaves, you know, kind of a, a vacuum, uh, a representational vacuum for people who have not voted for that leader, don't, you know, kind of have, have different views within the system and can't make their, you know, uh, voice heard then through uh, those mechanisms. And that that's when it gets into your area of, of research is when you often do have situations that might make themselves ripe for civil war. Because people feel without that representation, if they're opposed to that leader, that leader's views that they're, they're part of the minority, or they're certainly not, they could actually be a minority rule as well, actually, if it's kind of structured in a particular way, or they're part of that a majority feel silenced. How then do they express their concerns? And, you know, we might have more of a propensity or a risk there of uh, political violence. So if we had a follow-up round table on the benefits of populism, would you have anything that you would want to contribute to that conversation? Well, look, I think there are elements of um, the, you know this um, approach that are in every democracy, even as a fully functioning representational democracy. People pay an awful lot of attention to public opinion. We do, you know, political opinion at pollsters would be out of a job, right. you know, if we weren't looking at uh, public opinion. We do all kinds of surveys as sort of social scientists and others. We want to know what people think about things because representational democracy also only goes so far, right? You know, there's not perfect representation. Not everybody feels that their congressperson is really actually theirs. They didn't vote for them. And again, you know, they want, they have to write letters, you know, but they want people to be sensitive to their views in polling. Every system, you know, looks uh, and should look at um, opinion polling to see how people think and, you know, try to kind of modulate uh, policies or kind of get the, the temperature, you know, so to speak, of, uh, of, of the public. Uh, you know, we have to have different ways of uh, putting information into the system and informational uh, inputs that we can, you know, assess. So, you know, we, you want to uh, have a system of government that, people feel that they're participating in, that they do have some kind of direct connection to, but not just to kind of one leader. That's when, you know, we run into, particularly in incredibly complex societies like ours and complex polities with a diverse uh, set of viewpoints, demographic changes, you know, it becomes extremely important to have, you know, different forms of representation and mobilization within society. 
So this idea of the intermediary of political parties or other institutions that represent um, the people, there seems to be an assumption that those institutions work. <laughs> um, so in well, the United sometimes States they don't though, do they? And that's kind of part of our problem. How do we refresh it and revitalize it? Okay, that's the question. There you go. <laughs> because because uh, trust in public institutions is really low right now. Congress can't seem to get anything done. You know, there's increasing worries about the Supreme Court in the United States. So if we have supposedly three co-equal branches of government, if two of those branches are either completely unrepresentative or um, non-functional, doesn't that really open the door to a populist president coming in and doing his thing? Absolutely. That's exactly it. I mean, you know, you're spot on there. And, you know, that was really what I was unpacking in, in the new book. You know, how we got to this moment of populism, you know, through the, in many respects, the degeneration of that other representational process where people don't feel represented. And look, and that can happen in all kinds of different ways. It can happen by people feeling they're not politically represented, culturally represented, generationally represented. Uh, and, you know, how do you make the system more responsive to, you know, the, the changes that happen within our society? In the United States, Russia and the United Kingdom, you know, we are now at the kind of culmination of a process, I would say, that began back in the 1980s and the big shifts in the economy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've obviously seen that out in the Midwest, you know, everybody talks about the Rust Belt. Well, that didn't used to be the Rust Belt, but what people <laughs> called parts of the Midwest, Michigan and, you know, kind of. Pennsylvania and Ohio and Illinois, it wasn't the Rust Belt, it was the heartland, you know, it was kind of the Midwest, it was the kind of the engine of the United States economy. I grew up in the northeast of England in a coal mining area, County Durham, which is like the Lehigh Valley or, you know, anywhere in Appalachia in the United States, it used to be the heartland of the Industrial Revolution, it was one of the more prosperous parts of Britain, and suddenly it becomes, you know, the Rust Belt as well. And people there feel like they've been disenfranchised as the economy moved on. Their um, workplaces disappeared, mass layoffs uh, with closing down of you know, big factories and steelworks and coal mines as the economy shifted. People got left behind and increasingly they had no way of exerting um, their um, influence uh, at all within the politics. You know, they literally um, had no money. You know, the tax base uh, disappeared. And so kind of local councils became weakened and dependent and on handout from the center. There was no kind of independent voices because nobody had any kind of authority. Nobody cared about them. The big unions, you know, kind of got closed down before the unions might have a voice. You know, the kind of the, the local officials from, you know, the big cities or major towns no longer had a voice. Nobody listened to them because they didn't have any clout in the system. Okay. Everything had moved somewhere else. And that's how people feel in the United States and UK and also in Russia. That all of the kind of political influence as well as the economic opportunity uh, all goes to somewhere else that's not here. And how do you, you know, you send your representative there, but they don't really seem to be getting any traction. And you don't see yourself reflected in the faces of, you know, the people in the elites. You know, you don't see that kind of pathway you could get there too to make, get your voice heard. And that's kind of when, you know, the system starts to break down. And some, somebody comes forward and says, I'm listening. I see you. I'm hearing you. I'm going to fix this for you. I'm going to be your champion. I'm going to go out there and fight for you, which is what President Trump said to people. And in the United Kingdom, it was Nigel Farage saying, well, look, the problem is Brussels. It's so far away. You know, we need to bring back control. 
when people voted for Brexit, they wanted to bring control back to their home, not to London. They wanted kind of something, you know, kind of back to their, you know, places in the north of England, the Midlands and other places, just like, you know, in the Midwest, people would like to have more, you know, kind of say over their own affairs in Chicago and Illinois, you know, kind of around there, not having everything decided by Washington, by a whole bunch of faceless bureaucrats that people can't see their linkages with. And so when somebody comes and short circuits that process and says, right, I'm here, I'm going to kind of fix things, that becomes very appealing, just like you said. And the same thing happened in Russia. After there's all this churn in the 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the supposedly democracy and parties, and really there just seems to be a lot of economic deprivation and there's just kind of chaos and political crisis. And Putin comes along and says, I'm going to fix this. You know, I'm going to sort this out, you know, give me your votes and I'll handle it all. And of course, then we get the kind of rollback of democracy entirely in an authoritarian autocratic system that, that kind of emerges there, which is the risk that we have here. Mm. And the risk are in other settings as well. So we have to figure out how to revitalize this. And this is kind of really what I was writing about the book, because it's not just going to happen at the top. I mean, we have to figure out how to make the political parties more responsive. Sometimes I kind of think, you know, obviously it's very hard in the United States to create a third party uh, you know, system, a three-party system. In the United Kingdom, there's, you know, three parties, you know, and four parties and other parties have emerged. Places like Germany, you've got multiple parties and you have like these coalition governments. But, you know, our system is set up really in favor of these two parties and the two-party system is broken down because the parties themselves have become fractured and fragmented. And we see that every single day, both the Republican and the Democratic Party. There are, you know, there's a whole spectrum of views. There's not very much coherence there. There's populism within the parties as well. Leaders, you know, kind of stepping forward, not just Donald Trump and the Republican Party, but within the Democratic Party, a lot of kind of would-be populists there too, you know, kind of, uh, you know, taking a stance based on what they think, you know, the popular um, uh, appeal is or what people want and, you know, kind of expressing this. But what we have to find out is ways of getting more, politically engaged, the rest of us as citizens. It's putting the people back into this, not having the people have their views and opinions usurped by one person or you know, a particular movement, but how you get a bit of people, you know, all of ourselves mobilized in support of things. And you know, what I'm arguing in the book for is to get back to the kind of things that we're doing here, have these kinds of debates, you know, get younger people at um, Places like the University of Illinois in Chicago, which is very much, you know, woven into the fabric of uh, the city and of the, the state, thinking about how they could get um, involved in public service in a city and local government and, and start to kind of generate change on a local community and regional level. And I think if we kind of get back into that kind of idea of our own civic engagement and getting involved in issues, and I'm trying to challenge myself with this book to do more of this too, you can then you know, set an example and really kind of push things up from the bottom to get the parties to be more responsive. I know it's difficult when you're in a debate, as I know you are right now in around Chicago about districting and you know, carving yeah. things up and, you know, and your vote then <laughs> might not count where it did before. It's not in a different district entirely and you know, kind of how you're getting proper representation. But part, political parties aren't the only way of getting at this. There's other forms of representation within our democracy. There's other forms of civic engagement. And I think universities can play a really important role here because we also need different generations um, engaged here too. And there's non-profits, there's public-private partnerships. You can work with your local mayors, you know, because there are mayors at different levels, not just one of the big city, but of, you know, kind of smaller, you know, entities, work with your local government. 
And you know, think about how student organizations getting mobilized, labor organizations, there's all kinds of different ways in which we can revitalize you know, our system and give uh, larger groups you know, kind of more representation. You can push issues, for example. Jumping off of that last comment, um, several faculty members, um, Tanera Marshall from theater and Amy Campbell in the law school, wanted to ask your advice about how to inspire the students, especially we have a large population of first-generation students and students who are the children of immigrants. How do we get them to care about foreign affairs um, if they don't already and prepare them more comprehensively about foreign relations and, and domestic politics, since that's where you think this needs to start? Yeah, well, look, those two things are timed together. Look, I was first generation. My dad left school at 14 and went down a coal mine, as I lay in the book. And the book really kind of lays this out as a kind of a story for people as well about, you know, kind of, yes, I, in a way, lived the American dream. You know, I, I'm an immigrant. My uh, parents, um, you know, were, came from very poor families, generations of poverty. Um, you know, my father was a coal miner with no education, you know, beyond 14. Uh, my grandfather 13 my grandmother before 12 you know I mean this is uh, you know we, we were really you know I've, I've over <laughs> over overachieved I guess you know the family context but they had those aspirations for me and there was an opportunity through education especially coming to the United States and having opportunity and you know what I'm arguing in the book is that everybody should have those kinds of opportunities and you get a lot of that by figuring out how to get engaged I learned you know early on that my life story and experience was emblematic of a much larger set of affairs you know so for example why did the coal mines close down my dad lose his job i was always wondering about that it wasn't just chance it was this larger shift in the global economy and that's when you realize that foreign affairs has a lot of impact on you you know my father-in-law my husband's family were originally from south dakota and then moved to uh, chicago via minnesota as well they've moved all the way around the midwest but his, my husband's father, my father-in-law was from a farming family in South Dakota. And he was really engaged on foreign policy because he understood as a farmer and they grew soybeans and corn and had cattle. You know, and if you're sitting in you know, Chicago and you're into commodities and you know, agricultural products, you're really affected by all these kind of foreign affairs issues. Sure. Uh, because, you know, who buys soybeans, not just in America. In fact, soybeans are a huge export commodity. Right. I mean, they're not just for animal feed you know the largest consumers of soybeans are actually out in the far east in china and japan and places you know kind of uh, and uh, other places that use soy you know kind of on a, on a large scale and so how our relations are with those countries has a big impact on you back in your field you know what you're going to make these decisions on south dakota my father-in-law was incredibly up to date on uh, foreign affairs international events because he was following the commodities you know because there was his livelihood and he also you know it depends on your time there's an awful lot of people in the united states particularly first generation uh, college and immigrants who go to college through the rotc mm-hmm. or who join the military mm-hmm. and maybe get an education through the military and then you know kind of as veterans as you know retirees coming you know back to college as well and what is the military there for it's to defend us you know from foreign adversaries I mean, this is a fantastic source of mobility and of training and technical training, but ultimately the military and being part of the military involves you in foreign affairs right away because it's, you know, kind of what adversarial relations do we have? And, you know, the best way to keep ourselves out of wars 
is to have a very robust diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And when you're sitting in a major city like Chicago as well, Chicago has relationships with a whole host of other cities around the world. Mm-hmm. Chicago has a massive board of trade, which is not just again about commodities. You have, you know, kind of a great, you know, global affairs uh, center. Mm-hmm. Uh, the universities, you know, have linkages, you know, outside there. Chicago is a global city. Yeah. People Sister come to cities. Chicago. It's uh, exactly, you know, the you you can't be. I mean, there are some parts of the United States where you could kind of wall yourself off from, you know, the rest of the world. I can think of a few places, but it's actually increasingly difficult. Yeah. And then when you have an issue like climate change, so when my father-in-law passed away, um, he left this amazing record that he'd been keeping ever since he was a kid on the farm in South Dakota of soil changes, climatic changes. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when he was born in the 1930s, it was the Dust Bowl. Right. And they kind of kept these records. And he, you know, just of his own empirical you know, perspective of keeping all these records, could see that the climate was changing. He was not one who didn't believe that it was happening because he could see it. And that was right. then going to have an enormous impact. And of course, the climate is a global phenomenon. There are microclimates. But, you know, if we're going to be able to address and mitigate climate change, we have to be able to do it together as an international exercise. Same with COVID and the pandemic. You know, we're now worried about the Omicron um, variant. And why is that? Because we haven't been able to have a global vaccination campaign. So we've got more of a risk of mutations in other places. That's also part of kind of foreign policy. A part of our own public health is intertwined with the public health and medical standards of other countries. So, you know, even if you never leave Illinois, the world comes to you, you know, you know, basically whether you like it or not. And I think, you know, with people who are immigrants, you know, people of first generation in college, you know, be, being able to understand the world and how the world affects you is an important part of, you know, just positioning yourself. You know, another thing is that the world economy is changing so rapidly and trends in other places, technological trends will come back here to the United States. Mm-hmm. And we'll be constantly having to adapt our own skills and learning. I mean, you know, I'm in my, my 50s now, but I can't think feel like you know there's so many things I don't know right. and I feel like I've it's just this opportunity of con- continuous learning mm-hmm. um you know this is what UIC and you know many other institutions offer the chance for people to kind of come back again and learn new skills and you know for adult education and you know we all uh, unfortunately school never stops right. <laughs> it keeps on going sure and you know we constantly have to adapt ourselves that's because of these global uh, changes my dad lost his job in the coal mines because of global trends and global changes and you know yeah. it wasn't anything to do with anything particularly local and he had to adapt as well and figure it out but without the benefit of a fantastic education yeah. before we move on to the q a and student questions um as i was going through the questions that had been submitted in advance um unsurprisingly a lot of the questions came from faculty and staff Um, But when I looked at the student questions, I was distressed to see a disparity between the questions that were posed uh, by male students in in number versus those by female students. And as a woman in foreign affairs, in international relations, do you have any advice or maybe an exhortation for the women who are here today listening um, about there being a place for women in foreign affairs, um, a, an area that has lar- long been um, populated by by men. Yeah, look, I mean, because this is a rapidly changing world with you know a lot of these trends that we've talked about, we need a diversity of perspectives on all issues. 
and women are half the population in some places more than half the population because of mortality rates and you know other factors and certainly in universities um, there are more and more women um, who um, are coming into undergraduate and, and graduate programs and it's not just women it's people from all kinds of backgrounds socioeconomic backgrounds uh, you know, racial, you know, you name it, every single background, we need a diversity of perspectives because the world is incredibly complex. And if you're just getting one perspective on things in the world, we will not be well-placed. And we have to think about all of our population as our human capital. It's kind of an investment uh, of our entire society and of our country and people. We're only as good as our people. And I know, you know, as a, as a woman and a woman from a disadvantaged background when I first started out I always felt very nervous about speaking out because I thought oh I don't know anything and nobody's going to listen to me especially I've got you know kind of a funny accent you know I come from you know when I was starting off in the UK I came from what was and I describe in the book I faced a lot of discrimination because of who I was and where I was from it wasn't just about being a girl but it's being from a working class background you know not educated from you know a small coal mining you know region you know the People just thought, well, what have you got to say about anything? But, you know, I, I persisted. <laughs> you know, I'm now. I've learned a lot and I've you know, got some things to say, but everyone has a voice. Everyone has a perspective. Everyone's got something to bring to the table. And I do know that you often hesitate. I mean, early on in my career, you know, I would say something at a seminar and then everybody would say nothing. I'd often be the only one to the table. And then five minutes later, a guy would say the same thing, just in a different way. And I would like, what? You know, I wondered, does I think there's something said by a man before anybody pays attention? And then I think, God, I was so stupid. I didn't say that right, did I? And I would agonize. I would go home and like beating myself up and thinking, well, next time I really shouldn't say the thing. And then, you know, kind of the next time I'd come around and I'd be like, oh, you know, they're missing a point here. I've got to say this. And I'd be, you know, so just eventually I just kept persisting. Yeah. And, you know, then people stopped just repeating what I'd said. <laughs> it takes a while, you know, but um, I was going to say it happened to me yesterday. Listening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, and I'd be like, I just said that. <laughs> so I just said to people, look, have some courage and confidence. You know, you, you've got a perspective. Your viewpoint is just as good as anybody else's. I mean, I, look, I was like everyone else. I used to practice what I was going to say. Sometimes I wasn't paying enough attention to the for the discussion because I was so anxious about articulating in the right way so that people would listen. You know, and I talk in the book about you know different ways women have to present themselves. You know, one of the most astounding things when I had to appear at the um, first impeachment as a, as a witness. And I talk about this in the book is the first thing that I, the PR people who were attached to the law firm said to me is like, well, we'll have to decide what you're going to wear. And I was like, well, kind of thought we would be talking about how this was gonna go down in terms of the questioning and the structure and things. And they're all saying, no, we have to just be very important about how you look. And I said, do you do this for men's? Not so much, but you know, women, women can be distracting. And this is another woman, you know, telling me this. And, um, you know, I thought, but what? Because people will look at, you know, how your hair is, you know, kind of what your makeup looks like, what your clothes are. And she said, you know, you will be in the style section, the Washington Post. I thought, that's absurd. Yeah. This, is, this is a testimony in front of Congress. And I've done those before professionally behind the scenes. And it's like, you know, okay, I'll probably just dress like this, put my jacket on and a necklace or something, brush my hair and hope for the best, you know, kind of. Um, and yeah, I was, you know, I had to have a whole makeover. You know, my hair all done and, you know, choosing the clothes and she was right and it was all kind of that ridiculous presentational aspect of getting people to listen to you you know so sometimes you know you have to really kind of put in an awful lot of effort but I'm hoping that you know now we've had zoom and we've all been you know trapped in little boxes you know right. for some time that we'll all be a bit kinder to each other 
<laughs> and not be just sort of judging, you know, kind of everything by people's appearances. But the other thing that I would say to women and people from any background whatsoever is band together, be kind, you know, to your colleagues, mentor up because people like me need to hear from you and, you know, kind of get an idea about how we can present ourselves better. We all need to be working together here. And, you know, don't try to, this isn't a competition, it's a team sport life. You know, there's plenty of room for everybody else here. And we all do much better when we're working together and trying to, you know, kind of listen to others as well. I've learned a ton from listening to other people that, you know, has really kind of helped me going you know, to do better myself and uh, do better analysis and present my ideas in a, in a better way. Because, you know, the questions like this, thinking, oh, wow, that's interesting. We're putting it or, you know, these kinds of interactions are important for all of us. Okay, let's turn to some students now. Um, we are trying something new here by unmuting in a webinar. We don't know how this is going to work, but I am going to invite <laughs> Lucas, <laughs> Lucas Beasley from the College of Engineering to ask the question he submitted. Hi, Lucas. Hi, doctor. Um, I'm hoping you can hear me. <laughs> You're good. Hi, Katie. Actually, that's great. Hi, Katie. Um, so yeah, I, I'd like to know, uh, during your service on the national security council, um, I know you, you've definitely spoken to a great length about, about populism, but were there other ideologies that were deemed as, as potentially harmful or dangerous, um, and, and what measures were, or maybe even could be taken to sort of lessen that harm? Look, I think, you know, part of our problem is that we tend to label things, you know, lots and just, you know, as we were uh, just talking with Professor Forrest here about, you know, the difficulties of, um, you know, really kind of figuring out what some of these isms are, you know, that's kind of part of our problem. I think, um, you know, when we sort of think about other ideologies, there's other tendencies, let's just say, and trends. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, some other countries have really tried over uh, history to form these kind of coherent ideologies and ideological, you know, viewpoints. They've usually, you know, never been as coherent or as systematic as we've uh, expected, but there's certainly been kind of tendencies and trends in politics that are particularly harmful. You know, we have extremism as another ism in all kinds of different forms, but there's no common uh, viewpoint in extremism because it can you know, manifest itself in many different ways of sort of taking extreme political views, being very rigid about them. And then, you know, kind of seeing that the people who don't agree with you are the enemy in some way, and maybe they have to be harmed. Um, and, you know, that isn't just, uh, you know, something that happens on the left or the right or, you know, one religious or one kind of ethnic group, it can happen across the board. And I think extreme views uh, are something that, uh, you know, I certainly saw manifesting themselves during the time that I was on the National Security Council, people taking extraordinary rigid viewpoints, not being open to hearing another person's perspective, labeling something in a very negative way that they didn't want to, to deal with not being open to debate or open to thinking about things. You know, certainly that kind of extreme viewpoint of negating others and turning others into the enemy. Uh, I mean, this is the, the root of the work uh, that Professor Forrest does about the beginnings of civil war. Mm -hmm. We are in a moment right now in the United States, I would argue that we're on the cusp of that because we've had a lot of civil violence. We have an awful lot of people taking extreme views about that from their political stances. Um, partisan, extreme partisanship, that was definitely uh, problematic of seeing, you know, kind of the other, somebody in the other party as being an enemy, that there has to be a win or, a, you know, kind of a victory over them and they have to be thoroughly defeated, you know, thinking of politics as mortal combat and not having, you know, this kind of, what we might term a strategic empathy about being able to see the other person's viewpoint. 
And we've had so many manifestations now of civil violence, you know, what we saw on January 6th, uh, for example, uh, what we saw Black Lives Matter protests, you know, what we've seen, you know, across the country in terms of uh, protests getting out of hand, uh, people, you know, basically uh, being willing in polls as well, getting back to the political opinion polling, rather disturbing percentages of people saying that they would be willing to commit violence against, you know, fellow Americans in the pursuit of their particular cause and their particular viewpoint. This is something we should be deeply concerned about. And I mean, you know, I'm hoping that the people who take uh, Professor Flores's courses, that they're paying careful attention because we had a civil war in the United States back in the 1860s. And we could very easily have one again, perhaps not on that same massive scale, but if sufficient episodes of political violence breaking out in sufficient in, uh, you know, a large number of regions simultaneously would count for the same thing. And in fact, if you look back to the Russian civil war that preceded or succeeded rather the Bolshevik revolution of 2017 that went on into the 1920s. It was actually episodic uh, uh, upsurges of violence. It wasn't just kind of one mass, you know, like we saw in the United States of, you know, opposing armies. There was, there was some of that in different kind of places, but a lot of it was communal uh, violence and, uh, you know, civil strife in multiple places at the same time until, you know, the Bolshevik uh, government exerted strong control. So I can easily see things getting out of hand here in the United States as well. I mean, we had in Oregon, you know, for, I mean, it's happened again, you know, kind of just a continuous civil violence that sort of erupted as a result of, again, these extreme views of people seeing um, each other in opposing camps. So that was something that I definitely saw as very dangerous, Lucas. And I saw it kind of embedded into the politics you know, the White House while I was there and the National Security Council, this sort of incitement to violence because of positions, you know, and seeing other people as the enemy if they didn't agree with you. Okay, I heard from Kelsey that there is a question from the chat. Yes, this question is from Timothy. Um, what specific reforms do you think need to be made to the U.S. democracy in order for people to feel that their voice is heard? Yeah, I mean, it's a really big question. I mean, a lot of it is to do with the way that our political parties are structured right now. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, for me, I, I find it very hard, honestly, to start to think about how you might change that, um, you know, from the top. And certainly presidents, um, you know, if you think back, um, you know, over time, have certainly kind of made an effort to bridge build um, and, you know, more bipartisanship in Congress, you know, members of Congress are, basically trying to operate across the aisle that would certainly uh, make an, imp uh, an impact but right now there doesn't seem to be much reward in that in the way that the kind of uh, the political parties are operating you know we saw 13 members of the Republican Party being censored uh, censured by the uh, fellow Republicans for voting for the infrastructure bill this is infrastructure for you know roads and rail and bridges and you know things that the you know, Republican Party were promoting before um, you know, time and time again, we see kind of punishment being meted out uh, to people from the different political parties who try to reach out or, you know, not conforming to, you know, particular viewpoints. So that in itself is, you know, extraordinarily problematic. So, you know, I think we have to sort of start at other levels, again, as I was suggesting a little bit earlier, to give a demonstration effect. So here at universities, you know, as um, Provost Reyes said at the very beginning, doing something like this is fantastic, having a conversation, getting people with different viewpoints to talk to each other, having it mediated, giving people a chance to express themselves and not labeling them right away. 
you know, it's again, I think it's a kind of very harmful in which we say, oh, you're this or you're that immediately. And if you can't articulate what you're trying to say, everybody comes the woman, you know, in the event who gets talked over and people re-articulating because nobody's listening to you and they're not hearing, you know, what you're, what you're trying to say. Even if, you know, you don't know the right words or the right kind of terminology, not to be judged for that, but to try to have this honest conversation, open conversation about things. As I said, trying to mobilize people on a community level. This is a community, UIC, you know, through a network. And in you know, ways in which you find of, of working together and bringing that forward, you know, pe getting people to engage in town halls with the members of Congress when they come back, going out and voting, you know, and, and then trying to um, volunteer for getting out the vote activities or volunteer for your local Congress, but, but volunteering for a local mayor's office, you know, volunteering for something in the civic space, getting engaged in civic ed education, reaching out to schools, you know, giving everybody a kind of a sense of participation. And again, we can have many, many points of mobilization beyond political parties. And I think this is kind of like the time where we have to kind of basically show to people who are kind of sitting there on Capitol Hill or in state capitals in, uh, you know, across the United States. Look, you know, we want more participation here, too, as well. We're going to get engaged in issues. You can mobilize between behind a series of issues in a nonprofit space. You know, I, I wouldn't say going out there and sort of fighting with others on the different sides of barricades on an issue, pick something that's bit less contentious than a couple we can probably think of you know they're going through the supreme court and things right now pick an issue that is you know kind of a great concern a more general concern figure out how you can bring together a network of people to tackle it you know on the kind of local level um you know kind of a community project it's just think about something that you can take forward and um in the back of the book it's sitting behind me over my shoulder here i give a bunch of suggestions of things that people could take forward particularly from universities and other places because I do think you've got a lot of personal mobilizational force and that will then get people to realize that they can participate it's not just you know how can you get to Capitol Hill and run for office but how you can you participate in the largest civic life and be politically engaged without engaging in partisan fighting or labeling. UIC is very proud of its civic engagement um, activities and thank you for affirming that and that uh, we uh, would like to include as many students as possible in those activities. Thank you. So Jade Guest from the College of Education wanted to know how populism and populist sentiments affect education policy. Well, gosh, we're seeing that right now. I mean, I don't know quite how it's unfolding in you know Chicago, but we've just had um, the governor's race in the state next to me. I live in Maryland now in Virginia. And um, I'm sure people were reading about this, about, you know, the role of school boards and on books. And I thought to myself, my God, does nobody know the history? And, you know, the last time that people were, you know, kind of basically pouring over books and talking about banning books and burning books, this was in Hitler's Germany. And, you know, kind of, uh, you know, I mean, I, I understand that particularly after COVID, I'm a parent, I have a 14 year old. Sometimes I wonder what you're reading, <laughs> what you're looking at, you know, what, you know, kind of, I have that, you know, feeling myself. But, you know, we need to have open debate. Once we start banning books or, you know, kind of, uh, we're on a slippery slope. So, you know, in terms of that's populism in education, right? That is kind of, you know, the perversion of people power. Uh, you might have, you know, followed that governor's race and there was a debate about how much parents should be involved in education. And I guess, you know, and how much, you know, it should have more of a sort of a national curriculum approach. Um, or a regional curriculum approach. That is actually one aspect that I've, I've always been puzzled about in the United States. There isn't really a national curriculum. Um, that, you know, you don't have a kind of a, a set, uh, I mean, obviously um, in, uh, the standards, there's national standards, but there isn't national 
you know, kind of agreement on even things like civics education or how you teach, you know, one thing over another, other kinds of a core uh, core books curriculum, which I grew up with in the United Kingdom, and then you could mm -hmm. build up from that. And you know, so in a way, people do have the same kind of reading list. You can have a critical approach to it. You can add other things onto it. But we're all kind of in the same sort of space. And obviously, that's now the big debate and the big struggle. And people literally taking extreme positions and fighting over, you know, what children learn. And again, you know, like I said earlier, the whole of life is a learning experience. And we're going to have, we're not going to, you know, just stop learning when we get out of middle school or high school. We're going to continue to learn throughout our entire lives community colleges, colleges of further education, extension schools, you know, the kinds of arrangements that you have at UIC where people can work and study at the same time. Online learning um, at the University of Arizona does an enormous amount of it, for example, that's kind of tied into the workplace, you know, learning on the job. My father continued his education through the Miners Association in Durham and also through the Quakers and some other nonprofits that, um, you know, basically try to help um, miners improve their literacy after they've all left school at 14. You know, there are all kinds of different ways of getting at this. They're not just in the formal education. And I also do think that the education school at UIC can engage with schools. And, you know, where we try to diffuse some of these tensions here by, you know, giving kids the opportunity to see the kinds of things that they might... Um, uh, be able to experience at university. Another kind of problem in all of you know this is that, you know, we need to kind of reach even much further back to put kids on an educational path. You know, we're debating that in the United States right now about you know pre-K, uh, you know, kind of uh, universal kindergarten. You know, how we kind of get kids early on into the bug of learning. So not going to be doing that by fighting over what kind of books they're uh, reading, but, you know, how you think about, you know, kind of education in a holistic, larger sense, the kind of opportunities that kids have. Education is not just in the classroom, it's extracurricular activities. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I benefited immensely from subsidised out-of-school programmes that my local county council paid for. There's some great community programmes around the country in sports, theatre, you know, photography, uh, chess clubs, you know, you name it, that kind of bring a kid out into a different perspective where they learn a lot more. And so how can we expand that idea of education so we're not going small ball in these kind of fights about, you know, what kids are studying in a book, but about how they're learning in a more holistic fashion. And again, I think universities can help by reaching back to schools, you know, inviting kids at all kinds of ages to come and see, you know, having mentorship programs, big brother, big sister kind of approaches for kids in school. Pick a school in, you know, in the, in the neighbourhood of UIC, for example, or a series of schools, try to kind of engage with them. Because we'd have to diffuse these tensions here because we also have to prepare people for the 21st century. Yeah. And again, getting back to that point of global workplace, other countries are not having arguments like this. You know, so, I mean, some have in different historic periods and, okay, some settings might be in China and things like that, but other advanced countries are not having arguments about you know, kind of whether a kid should read this book or that book and talking about banning books. That was, you know, kind of in the past in Europe and turned out, you know, particularly badly. So even with the rise of populism on the right in Europe, they haven't gone back to the, you know, the the censorship burning books argument. It's it's manifested in different ways. In cases they have done, but not on the kind of scale that we've been seeing here recently. And again, sure. you know, a lot okay. of people look to the United States to set the tone. Mm. And if that's the tone we're setting, that could be extraordinarily problematic. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we have the power of our example here. And people watch very closely what happens in the United States. And, you know, when we're having, you know, arguments about this, um, you know, again, it could encourage 
the same kind of phenomenon in other places. But as I said, I mean, it's also because of this narrow definition that we have of education, that all and everything happens within a school format. Of course, that's pretty important, but this, as I said, it's that large perspective of education, um, you know, that we're all you know, setting ourselves up for. We continue to learn throughout our lives and adapt and giving, you know, kind of kids of a sense of something outside of the school, of other things outside of books, practical learning, practical experience. I mean, I think, you know, your education school, and you know, other students and student groups could all get involved in this. So in a way it might diffuse some of the attentions around books and what kids are learning in books. Well, I could probably ask you about a million additional questions, but we are nearing the end of our time. So thank you so much. And I'm gonna turn the floor back over to Provost Reyes. Thanks so much, Professor Flores, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Flores and Dr. Hill. This is uh, such a wonderful uh, conversation, a thought-provoking discussion. Uh, and thank you for making this the very first edition of the Roundtable a success. Uh, as we saw, attendance was really, really, really up there and everybody was engaged. I want to thank all in the audience for attending today and joining us today, knowing that we are pressed for time. But this event was recorded and will be shared on my website, provost.uic.edu, in the coming days. You can also catch the audio and Professor Flores, in, in, on Professor Flores' podcast. Please be on the lookout for future roundtable events, which will be shared via campus announcements and posting on UIC Today. And send those topics or uh, presenters that you would like us to host. We would like to be this a conversation that you all want to have and with the individuals that you would like to have. Uh, and, and Dr. Hill, uh, it was a, a true honor to have you uh, virtually at UIC. As we spoke before the program, hopefully we can get you to campus when uh, the, the, the healthcare issues are our way, uh, but we are really honored to have you. It's what an engaging conversation. Thank you for championing universities as a place where we can talk about uh, topics like this one and others uh, in a way that it's for learning and for moving the frontier of knowledge forward. So truly appreciate you. Uh, I don't know if you want to say any final words, and if not, we can take off. So. Well, I just wanted to say thank you. Look, it's a real honor, and it's institutions like UIC that really shaping the future. I mean, you are really, you know, the institutions that count for a lot, not just, you know, at the state level, but also nationally. I and mean, this is a new generation of leaders that uh, you're nurturing here. And it's the networks that people are founding and the ability to be able to have these kinds of conversations that are going to be essential. And I just want to remind everybody that you all have the ability to shape things, you know, so by participating in things like this, by having this discussion, by taking it forward, you can change things. And, you know, people like me, you know, the older people, <laughs> we need some help on this, you know, so we need some mentoring up, you know, we need to kind of stay current with the times, we need fresh ideas, we need diverse perspectives, and um, we need to avert some of these problems, you know, we don't want to set the United States off on this path, you know, potential, you know, more civil strife and conflict, we've got to figure out how to build bridges, and you're going to be the people who help us do that. So I'm just thrilled to pieces to have this opportunity to talk with everybody, and I think this is a wonderful initiative. And then as you were saying, these civic initiatives, this engagement of institutions like UIC that are, you know, really um, integrated with their communities, you know, part of the city, part of the kind of the fabric of the state, you know, really much in connection with what's happening. Uh, these are, you, you are part of a vital uh, institution and a vital network, and I would just commend you on all the things that you're trying to do. Thank you very much. Thank you, truly. Kate, thank you very much. I don't know if you have any final words. I know we're going to be here on your podcast. No, I just want to say uh, thank you to our uh, audience for participating and good luck with finals next week.
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Good luck with finals. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.